You are listening to Let's Talk Trio on podcasts. Keep up with the latest episodes by downloading the Podbean app or stream episodes via our social media accounts. Search for Let's Talk Trio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This episode is sponsored by Student Access. Student Access, the leader in Trio software. Student Access is an online database solution that allows TRIO programs to track their students' information, connect with students by text messages, streamline the APR, and work from anywhere, all online, with automatic updates for changes from the Department of Education. Their technical support team includes former TRIO staff and has over 50 years of combined experience working with TRIO. Make it easier to focus on your priority, the students. For more information and to request a free demo, visit their website at www.studentaccess.com or call them toll-free at 1-800-801-1232. That website again is www.studentaccess.com or 1-800-801-1232. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on your social media by tapping that share button. This is a great way to support the podcast. Now here's your host, Juan Rivas. Thank you, Amelia, for that wonderful introduction. Hello, listener, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Trio. I am your host, Juan Rivas. In today's very important, very special episode, episode number 100 for Let's Talk Trio, and we couldn't have a better guest for this episode. Our guest today is Kim Jones, who is the current president of the Council for Opportunity and Education. Kim is on the podcast uh, to talk about her educational journey and just servicing the first generation students and the students all across the nation who benefit from TRIO programs. So coming up in just a bit, Kim Jones. A huge thank you to our sponsors, Angelica Villalpando, Rosario Riley, Angelica Valdez, Felicia Rivera, Dr. Ryan Barone, Dr. Jamie Motley, Jaded Electronics, TrioJobList.com, Nosotros Education Center, and Student Access. Thank you all so much for making episode number 100 possible for this podcast. You too can be a sponsor of the podcast. Head on over to Patreon and search for Let's Talk Trio. Choose one of four patron levels. You can support this podcast for as little as a dollar a month. A dollar a month goes a long way in supporting this podcast. If you own a business and would like to run an ad on our podcast, send us a message at letstalktrio at gmail.com. Become a supporter with a one-time donation to the podcast PayPal account. That handle is at letstalktrio. Again, that handle is at letstalktrio. Any amount is truly appreciated. If you would like to nominate a participant, staff, or alumni to be on the podcast, send us an email at letstalktrio at gmail.com. That email again is L-E-T-S-T-A-L-K-T-R-I-O at gmail.com. Once again, a great episode featuring Kim Jones from the Council for Opportunity and Education. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Three, two, one. 
Hi, Trio Nation. My guest on the Let's Talk Trio podcast is a Harry S. Truman Scholar and graduated from Yale University and Georgetown University Law Center. Since 2007, they have advocated for low income, first generation, and students with disabilities, as well as students of color with focus being college access and equity. They are currently the Executive Vice President of the Council for Opportunity and Education, also known as COE, an organization committed to advocating for programs like TRIO. Welcome to the podcast, or welcome back to the podcast, Kim Jones. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. It is such an honor to have you here. This podcast was very fortunate to get uh, Maureen Hoyler and Dr. Arnold Mitchum a few weeks ago, and now we get to have a little bit of one-on-one time with you. Outstanding. So just to... uh, Kim, can you talk a little a little bit about yourself, your origin story, and what was your upbringing like? Sure. So I'm originally from New Haven, Connecticut, and um, people often ask me doing this work if I was first generation of college, and I tell them no, but it's because my parents were. Um, my mom was born on a farm in South Carolina. And uh, the family was doing agriculture, as were many Black families uh, at that time. And they moved to Connecticut, where my mom was a child, to seek opportunities. So working in factories and mills. Um, And my parents, my grandparents rather, knew my mom was not quite cut out for the the labor that they Mm -hmm. were doing. And so even though a college degree was not required uh, to have a good career and a good middle-class life at that time, uh, when she graduated from high school in the 1960s, they basically made a deal with her. They said, if you go to college, we will buy you a car. Oh, nice. She wanted a car. So (laughs) uh, she went to uh, Quinnipiac University. It was Quinnipiac College at the time um, with her associate's degree. And what's interesting about that is that my mom's experience is really mirrored by a lot of our students even today. She graduated at the top of her class in high school, got to college and found herself completely underprepared. And Mm. so while she might have had higher aspirations, she, as she puts it, she just barely got that associate's degree. Mm. Um, and I'll tell you, my mom is one of the smartest people that I know. And so that says a lot about um, preparation and how important it is to make sure we're giving our students a good foundation so they can succeed once they get to post-secondary education. In terms of my father, um, you know, he actually started off not well off, certainly, but very comfortable. Um, his father had been a lawyer. Um, but as is the case with many families, um, particularly families of color, a single uh, incident can completely change the tra- trajectory of your family. Certainly. And so when my father was about five or six years old, his father was murdered. Mm. And so that almost instantly plunged the family into poverty. Uh, my grandmother had two small boys. So she ended up moving to Connecticut uh, to be with family. And um, most of the extended family were actually in the ministry. So you don't make a whole lot of money doing that. Mm. Um, But my parents met as children in a small town called Ansonia, Connecticut, about 20 minutes uh, away from New Haven, where I was born and where I grew up. Um, And my dad ultimately, you know, graduated from high school and took jobs. You know, I think he worked at a meat packing plant one time. I think he did some work for uh, Sikorsky doing just manual labor. And he was actually encouraged by a manager who just took notice of him uh, to say, you know, you you have talent and I think you should really think about going to school because if you stay here, you're going to be here 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so during my childhood, uh, my dad went to night school, essentially. Um, and during the day, he actually got a job, an entry level white collar job at uh, what was then Southern New England Telephone, one of the baby bells. 
and um, worked his way up, ultimately to become a branch manager, uh, one of the only black branch managers in the state of Connecticut. Um, and so my brother and I really saw the model that they put forward. And because of their example and their commitment personally to education, we always knew that we were going to go to college. Um, and that was never a question. Mm -hmm. um, and even looking at myself and my brother, we had very different educational experiences growing up. My parents made the sacrifice to send me to Catholic school, um, which was the best alternative. I couldn't, I'm from Connecticut, so they have some very fancy, dancy prep schools. Mm -hmm. Couldn't afford mm -hmm. that. Uh, but they wanted me to get something beyond what was available at the public school. And so they sent me to parochial schools. My brother, on the other hand, um, and I won't give too much of his backstory that's his to tell but because of uh, additional supports that he needed he needed to go to the public school system and to this day uh some of those schools in our hometown are among the five percent lowest performing schools in the country mm. um but my parents were adamant that my brother was going to get a good education um and so they were consistently at the schools talking to teachers talking to principals they wouldn't let the kids take books home because the kids would either lose them or steal them so my dad made photocopies of the of the texts wow. um and ultimately my brother graduated in the top 10 percent of his high school class incidentally uh, we were not eligible for upper bound um but the state of connecticut invests its own resources into something called concap connecticut college access program mm -hmm. and my brother qualified for that and that was a preparatory program for high school students and that program really focused on careers and teaching and so he got to do some student teaching as a high school student. And today I'm very proud to say he is a high school teacher in Northern Virginia. Uh, he actually teaches honors uh, American history and he's uh, pursuing a doctoral program. And we're going to get to get uh, to you here in just a moment about the things that you've accomplished as well. Uh, but were there any academic subjects that you really felt that spoke to you or you found fascinating? I loved English. I love to read when I have time um, and I enjoy writing. They tell me I'm good at it. And so that was probably the subject that primarily consistently throughout my education was the one I enjoyed most. And then, you know, when I got into post-secondary education, I fell in love with political science. I mean, I was that nerd who was reading the Federalist Papers aloud to my roommates. Um, I just really fell in love with the discipline. And um, yeah, that, that was me. And so you said family without a question was you were going to go to college. Uh, so how early did those conversations begin for you? Well, that's the thing. And that's the blessing, right? I was a 17-year-old college-bound student. I had just gotten admitted to Yale and I was at the hair salon and I'm under the dryer and a young lady sitting next to me, my age, she says to me, are you going to college? And I was almost insulted. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to college. What do you mean about going to college? Yeah. But as it turns out, as we, our conversation continued, she had just made the decision to go to college. And she was going to, uh, you know, the community college up the street, but yeah. she was going to be the first one to go. And honestly, because of my parents' influence, because of, you know, attending parochial schools that advertise themselves as college preparatory, there was no, there was never a question. And so that was honestly the first time it occurred to me that some people weren't going to go to college because it was uh, just a given. Mm -hmm. Um in terms of how my family thought about education. And so that was almost the first time I even thought about the concept of first generation is when I had that conversation with the young lady at the hair salon. Wow, wow. Uh, can you talk to us about your process of identifying what colleges would help meet your goals? Uh, did you have a method for selecting colleges? Okay, so I'm from New Haven. 
And the preeminent institution at New Haven, in New Haven is Yale University. It's constantly on the news. It's constantly on people's lips. Um, and so I remember as a child just asking my mama, what's Yale? And she said, oh, that's a school where smart people go. And I said, well, okay, well, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm smart. And yeah. so I think I was in maybe seventh grade and I wrote an essay that said, you know, what's your big dream in life? And I wrote an essay about going to Yale. Um, by the time I got to be a senior in high school, I had more or less not abandoned the dream, but I was like, you know, that's, I was like, I wasn't sure if that was a realistic possibility. Mm. And so I remember I applied and forgot about it. I said, I'm going to put everything into this application. So if I don't get in, I won't feel bad. And so I did that. And then I applied to all my other schools. And then all of a sudden, you know, in April, this big blue envelope shows up the house, shows up at the house. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the conversation got pretty clear for me because my parents said, you know, if we're going to have to go into debt for you to go to school, you're going to Yale. Uh, Cause I'd been given full rides at other places. Uh, so that decision was made pretty easily for me. <laughs> Thankfully, when I got there, I fell in love with the institution. Uh, I made some of my best friends there, had a wonderful enriching experience. Um, and I was actually just back there last weekend, the university much to its credit has come so far in terms of how it's um, supporting mm -hmm. students of color, low-income students, first-generation students. And I was a guest speaker at an alumni day for their new first-year scholars program, which essentially is a, it's a summer bridge mm -hmm. um, for admitted students who are low-income and first-gen. So spoiler alert, you, had, you decided to attend Yale University, uh, your school. Uh, what were some of the factors that led to that decision for you? Again, my parents were like, look, because I had I had free rides at several places. <laughs> and, <laughs> right, and, you know, right, right. Some schools would have owed me money because I had so much scholarship. So mm. they said, but you know, Yale, um, and it's it's different today, again to their credit. Today they have a no debt policy. So if you get in, they will make sure you do not have to take out loans. That was not the case in the 1990s. And so mm. my parents uh, had to rely on plus loans. I had to take out loans, I had to work a job. Um, and so I always had a personal investment in what I was doing. Um, mm -hmm. I knew it was a privilege to be there and I took it very seriously. Um, so, yeah. Right on. Can you give us your uh, summary of your experience while at Yale? Uh, what did you enjoy the most and what did you learn about yourself? So the thing I really enjoyed the most, of course, which many students would say is the relationships, the experiences. I met my absolute best friends there, still best friends to this day were godparents of each other's children, bridesmaids at weddings, all that sort of thing. Um, and I, I liken it to the experience that a lot of our students have when they, for instance, are in Student Support Services or McNair, you find your community. And that's what I found amongst my uh, friendships at Yale. It was primarily, I mean, it's still to this day, a relatively small mm -hmm. minority student population. Um, maybe 10% of the students were African-American or Afro-Caribbean. Um, or otherwise from the continent. And so because it was a smaller community, there was just an affinity there. And we all pushed each other to succeed. Um, and it was really one of the first times when I found myself in that kind of environment with that sort of positive peer pressure that everybody was pulling for everybody else to succeed. And it was the cool thing to get good grades. Um, you know, <laughs> and so that was a really enriching experience for me. Um, and then of course, you know, one of the things that, is a benefit of attending an institution like Yale is that you're being taught by the professor that actually wrote the textbook you're mm. learning from. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I took a course on global democracy and the professor had 
been the person that South Africa called in when they were becoming a democracy to help them write their constitution. Um, so in terms of the level of scholarship, um, it's it's really mind blowing and it's it's an awesome, awesome opportunity. Wonderful. So you moved on then to attend Georgetown University to seek a law degree there. Yes. Uh, what led to that process? And yeah, what was that experience like? So when I was an undergrad, I did a lot of community service, uh, particularly relating to uh, homelessness. There's a very, unfortunately, uh, you know, being in Yale's campus, it's really a tale of have and have not. You're on a beautiful Ivy League campus, but it's in the heart of an urban center, and there's a lot of poverty. And in doing service, I realized, you know, I can give out sandwiches, I can give out blankets, but sort of the give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man mm. a fish, he'll eat for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to go to law school because I wanted to be involved in policy change. And I particularly picked Georgetown because of their curriculum and the very strong emphasis on legislation policy, it being in Washington, D.C., as opposed to other institutions. Um, I also was too lazy to take the GRE, so I didn't want to get a policy degree uh, <laughs> and do a joint degree or anything like that. So Georgetown, I really felt as far as the curriculum fit the bill in terms of what I wanted to study and what I wanted to do professionally. Wow. So now based on your college record alone, I one would assume that you were seeking a, a career in law and that you were going to be a policymaker, lawmaker, all of that. Um, but what influenced your decision to work for an education advocacy, advocacy organization like COE? So let me take you back to my um, law school days. I actually worked or interned at a legal aid clinic. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a great experience. The lawyers were absolutely fabulous. I would hire any of them to represent me. Um, but it was also very challenging. First, to be quite frank, uh, most of the clients looked like me. None of the other lawyers did. Um, also, you're dealing one-on-one -on -one with some very intense issues. Um, and I would literally be sitting there crying with the client. Mm. One of the last clients I worked with, um, there was nothing we could have done to help her because the eviction notice had already been carried out. But um, to see the tears and the agony, um, I just knew that emotionally, I did not have the constitution to do that type of work. Mm. Um, and so I said to myself, well, let me try the private sector and see what's what's going on there. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And and well, I always tell law students, you know, they train you at law school to be a lawyer and they really push going to law firms because that helps their rankings. That helps them be able to say, oh, X percent of our graduates earn this amount of money. And so it's very easy to just trot off to a law firm. Sure, and sure. So I was fortunate enough to get a summer internship and an offer to come after graduation to a law firm here in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was considered a large law firm. Um, it actually no longer exists. It's been bought out by another firm. Mm -hmm. But um, I did two and a half, three years, a good hard time. Um, it was not for me. Um, mm -hmm. It was interesting intellectually. I was in the communications practice group. And so this was around the time of the Janet Jackson Super Bowl incident. So the law was changing. And a lot of our broadcast clients would reach out to us regularly to say, if I show this film, if I show this commercial, am I going to get uh, fined by the FCC? So there were mm -hmm. a lot of interesting things I was working on intellectually, but it was not nourishing for my soul. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, but you know, God works in mysterious ways and things work out for a reason. The council had recently come on board as a client of this firm, mm -hmm. uh, part of their education practice group. 
And so I had mentioned to one of my mentors at the firm, I said, you know, I really got to get out of here. And I'd uh-huh. love to go on Capitol <laughs> Hill. I would love to work at a age, you know, do something public service oriented. And so again, at that time, COE had just come on board. He had met, he was the head of the lobby practice group with the firm. And I didn't want to go there because they represent, you know, for the most part, um, you know, corporate entities that mm-hmm. would have been too similar in terms of what I was trying to escape from. Right, right, right. But he had just met Mitch and Maureen and they expressed that they were looking to beef up their lobby shop and did he know anybody who might be interested in coming over to the council Mm -hmm. and he said I think I might know somebody and so he made the introduction and I got to know Mitch and Maureen and and they invited me to come join COE and I did in the spring of 2007 I was the director of congressional affairs and just worked my way up over the course of 16 years wow that's an amazing work history uh being with the council uh talk about your current advocacy work was this something you noticed early on in your career that you that you really enjoyed and what keeps you engaged in this work so yes when i finally made it to the council i was like this is it this is what i've been wanting to do all this time i just didn't know how to articulate it um and advocacy even though now as executive vice president and moving into the presidency in the fall uh there's not as much of the day-to-day groundwork of advocacy, but in terms of the strategy, in terms of the outreach, in terms of the engagement with our community, that is consistent. Um, And just maintaining relationships with different members of Congress. A lot of my peers who I started off with lobbying, they're now in comparable positions at their associations. And so I have this wonderful network of of peers in the higher education community who are in leadership. Mm -hmm. We're able to support each other and we work on very similar issues. And so that's been supremely rewarding for me. That's awesome. Hey there. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsor. Are you seeking guidance to enhance your TRIO project's effectiveness and success? Look no further. Nosotros Education Center, NEC, is here to empower your TRIO project with expert consulting services. NEC's mission is to promote the effectiveness and impact of TRIO programs. Since 2003, NEC has specialized in providing professional development and in-service staff trainings, allowable cost services, for TRIO projects across the country. The team at NEC, with over 60 years of combined TRIO experience, offers customized workshops and seminars for project staff, compliance assessments, external evaluations, working on and submitting APRs, database customization and training, developments of policies and procedures manuals, and project implementation or reorganization services. Additionally, NEC has secured over $774 million in federal funding with a 92% success rate through their live and on-demand proposal workshops, assistance with data collection and review, detailed technical reviews, and comprehensive proposal development services. Join the hundreds of colleges, agencies, and TRIO projects across the country who benefited from NEC's expertise. Nosotros Education Center, your partner in TRIO's project success. Visit their website at nosotros.edu.org. Again, that's nosotros.edu.org. And now... Back to the podcast. So leadership often involves balancing short-term goals with long-term vision. What strategic initiatives do you plan to implement during your tenure to advance the council's mission while also creating sustainable impact for the future? 
So definitely, you know, if you look at COE's mission, it's to ensure that students, regardless of background, have the opportunity to go on and pursue college educations. And so one thing I'm really excited and passionate about is doing even more to enhance our student programming. A lot of people don't know uh, the breadth of things we offer at the council for mm. TRIO students. We just had a delegation of students come back from a study abroad trip to the Netherlands. Oh, uh, wow. Every summer we have our National Student Leadership Congress, which brings about 200 high school TRIO students to Washington, D.C. for leadership development, uh, model Congress, meeting with their members of Congress, community service, et cetera. And so I'm really interested to expand what we do in student programming. We're in the very elementary stages of doing a college level National Student Leadership Congress. And I think given all of the challenges mm -hmm. facing students, particularly around things like debt, um, it will make an awesome laboratory to really help students learn more about advocacy and get involved. We have recently started a career opportunities initiative at the council, which I'm supremely excited about because the consistent feedback we get from alumni is that the journey of being first generation doesn't end just because you get your diploma. Mm -hmm. And there are still challenges that folks face as first generation professionals. And so we're trying to equip our students with everything they need to be well suited to not only land um, opportunities for employment following graduation, but even beyond. And so we have our first cohort of about 115 students, all undergraduates, and they're going to be engaged in about six to nine months of preparatory work alongside paid, paid mentors. It's their job awesome. to work with these students um, on things like resume writing, networking, interviewing skills, um, career exploration with the goal of them being able to successfully apply for competitive internships at corporations, at nonprofits, um, uh, federal agencies, et cetera. And generally those applications open in the fall. And so that's why we've started in the spring to really give students the opportunity to hone their skills. And then even once they're placed, our goal is to continue to provide mentoring and support because again, you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of organizations, while they're certainly open and willing, Mm -hmm. uh, and want diverse students, they may not have the bones and structure themselves to embrace those students. And so we're trying to really make sure that our students are well equipped to succeed once they're in place. Uh, so those are two things I'm really excited about. Also, just looking at the TRIO professional community, I recognize and I'm, I'm, I'm woefully aware of the constant need to increase resources. And so hmm. maintaining our federal advocacy focus uh, to increase funding for TRIO and also making sure people are aware of our supports. You know, people think that three people work at the council and they don't know <laughs> the breadth of our, our staff, the talent of our staff. Mm -hmm. And we have a team of, I think it's five people now, for instance, in our professional development department. Mm -hmm. And their job is to interface with TRIO professionals to provide technical assistance, et cetera. And so really making sure that folks are fully aware of the resources we have available to support them at COE. Absolutely. Uh, by the time this podcast airs, you're going to be appointed as the new president for the Council for Opportunity in Education. Hopefully that's not news to you. Otherwise, I no, might no. have just failed everything. <laughs> so in your new position, how do you intend to engage with members, institutions, and stakeholders to understand better understand their needs and perspectives? And how will you use this input to shape the council's programs and initiatives? So for me, uh, I'm, I'm woefully aware of there's a reason why we have one mouth and two ears. And so I like to pride myself on being a good listener because, um, and I'm always transparent about this. If I were to get a job at an upper bound program, 
that would be my first day working in trio mm -hmm. and so really making myself a listening ear to our constituents so i'm well tuned in and plugged into the challenges they're facing in real time um so we can address them as best we can so that's something i'm really i've tried to already do that but i think i'll have even more opportunity to do that as a president also more engagement i think at the most senior leadership levels and helping our folks really have their presence known on their campuses. We're actually engaging in a community college initiative where we're trying to suss out what works best in a community college environment to help TRIOS programs succeed. And we are leveraging our networks among community college presidents, many of whom are familiar with TRIO, to really catalog this information so that we can build it out and so give people a blueprint. And it's my hope that ultimately we'll be able to do the same looking at programs at four-year uh, public institutions, looking mm -hmm. at private institutions, and so on. Right on. The council has a diverse membership representing various institutions and communities. How do you plan to leverage this, di this diversity to drive innovation and achieve more comprehensive and equitable outcomes? Well, so the hallmark of TRIO has always been the fact that we are a diverse community. Because we are unified by first generation of college, low-income status, you're by default going to get a cross-section of everybody. You know, I always tell people, if you go to one of our conferences, you look out in the audience and you see people from every corner of the country representing every demographic background as far as race, race ethnicity, political mm -hmm. thought. Um, and so that's um, key. That's our core strength uh, at COE. And it's absolutely critical to maintain that. Absolutely. The federal trio programs have have always, I felt, played a played on defense. They've always need, needed advocacy, right? They've, they've faced a variety of challenges. What strategies do you have in mind to address these challenges to ensure their sustained success and expansion? So you were right. We Very often we are on the defense. Uh, and I tell people all the time, we don't have a lot of money. We don't have a lot of prestige, but we have people, again, mm -hmm. in every single pocket of this country. And so by continuing to be consistently involved and engaged with our federal legislators uh, because they they hold the bag, right? And so uh, we're on a very, and I know you all are sick of getting my emails, but we're consistently sending <laughs> messages urging people, meet with your members of Congress locally. We can only do so much here in Washington, D.C. You know, mm -hmm. we're dealing with the federal folks and their representatives here, but as the constituents, as the voters, you all have the ears. Um, and especially, again, when we get into an even-numbered year, people's ears tend to perk up just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So continuous, continuously schooling our community about the ways in which they can engage their, their legislators locally. Um, and then even here in D.C., you know, we're always persistent. We don't miss a hearing. We don't miss a meeting. We don't miss a day on the Hill. Uh, we are very persistent and aggressive and take ourselves just as seriously as some of the big labor unions and other outfits, which have much bigger enterprises than we do. And that's part of how we've been successful all this time. Awesome. What steps will you take to ensure that the federal TRIO programs remain inclusive and responsive to the needs of diverse student populations, including students of color, first-generation students, and those from rural communities? So again, it goes back to the formulation of our program structure, first-generation of college, low-income background, um, and as well, we have special programming for students with disabilities, students who are veterans, um, right. so on and so forth. And so that 
has been our North Star and will continue to be our North Star moving forward. And I think we always do have to be mindful when we're designing programming that we're not just thinking about, well, how would this work in Chicago? We have to also think about how this would work in the rural plains. We have right. to think about how this will work in, in the Caribbean or in the Pacific right. Islands. And so really being mindful of the breadth of our community. Absolutely. The Council for Opportunity Education plays a crucial role in shaping educational policies that impact hundreds of thousands of students each year. How will you engage policymakers to ensure that their continued commitment to the success of the federal TRIO programs? Same. Um, we do not miss an opportunity. Um, and we are, we are we are aggressive. I, there are probably some other adjectives I could use, but we, <laughs> we are very aggressive and very consistent in our advocacy because we have to be. I always liken it to... Um, you know, selling Girl Scout cookies, you don't just want to be that person who shows up when you're selling cookies. You want to be right. friendly with your neighbors all year long. And that's something that we're really proud of the model we've established and um, continuing to do that. Um, because again, there's there's turnover, not just in terms of members of Congress, but even in the staff. Myself, I've noticed since two things, since the pandemic and then uh, since Janu January 6th, there's been a lot of turnover on the Hill. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm, we're having mm -hmm. to continuously reintroduce ourselves um, to the new team members. And it's really the staff that are the, the gatekeepers to the legislators. And so um, really being mindful of that and not getting complacent. Right on. Throughout your career in education and advocacy, what specific experiences or milestones have you have you have shaped your professional journey and influenced your passion for supporting underprivileged students? So I actually have a couple of examples. And actually the first one is not a success story. It's my biggest personal failure in freedom. Mm, okay. Um, so back in, I think 2012, um, and I, I, I hate to call names, but the Obama administration decided to move, I think it was $50 million out of the McNair Scholars Program mm. to move to, into upper bound math science. Mm -hmm. Now, the rationale we were given publicly was that, um, you know, we want to make sure we're getting students who are interested in STEM earlier in the pipeline. So that's why we're moving it from McNair into upper bound math science. Mm -hmm. um, but logistically, uh, we had been bleeding students for many years uh, under the Obama administration. And the reality is that given the per student cost, you get two upper bound math science students for every one McNair student. Mm -hmm. And so we believe that was the real reasoning behind that decision. So when we learned that that was the administration's plan and the administration, whatever administration it is, maintains authority over how the trio allocation is divided amongst the different programs. We did everything short of raise Dr. Ronald E. McNair from the grave. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually engaged his family. So his widow, his children, in advocacy. I spent about two weeks with them on the Hill. We met at the White House. We met at the highest levels of the Department of Education. We met with several members of Congress. Um, we had articles published in trade publications. We had a convening on Capitol Hill. We literally threw everything we had at the wall and nothing stuck. Because mm. at the end of the day, the funding was moved and we lost, let's see, I can't recall the exact number, but we lost a good number of McNair programs that year, including the alma mater of Dr. Ronald E. McNair. Mm. Um, so that was quite distressing. Mm -hmm. And um, I always remember that just because one, I, I was privileged to get to know the McNair family um, and learn so much about Dr. McNair and his legacy. 
and it really, I mean, we love all of our children, but it really endeared me to the McNair program. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also it's a reminder that you can do everything and still not succeed. Um, in the years since we've been able to recover lost ground, but that, that was a very difficult loss. And I, I kind of took it personally. Um, so that's a failure. I'll give you two examples of success. Okay. First was an FY 2015, uh, that involves student support services and the department of education and I can't recall all of the particulars, but essentially they decided to issue the grant application and then they withdrew it because they wanted to play with it some more. And we knew just based on the timing, Mm -hmm. there was no way that they would be able to complete that competition and get the results out before the end of the current grant cycle. Mm -hmm. And so again, we moved heaven and earth. Um, We engaged members across the aisle we actually called in one of our former board members, um, Dr. Dan Connell, who still serves as the uh, finance committee chair of COE. He uh, is an official at an agency, or excuse me, at a college that at the time was in the district of the chair of the full appropriations committee. And we brought him in and we actually had a meeting with the chair in the Capitol mm-hmm. um, and pleaded our case. And I was delighted that by the time the final bill was a continuing resolution, it is extremely difficult to get any instructional language into the text of a bill. You can get mm-hmm. report language, but right. to actually get it in the underlying bill, it's, it doesn't happen. But mm-hmm. we got language in that bill that instructed the Department of Education to issue the application awards by date X, to get out the awards by date Y. And, and that was a huge, huge monumental victory. Wonderful. Um, the last example, somewhat similar, um, in FY18, there was a movement, there was actually an amendment on the floor of the House of Representatives mm-hmm. to remove $60 million out of TRIO and to put it into career technical education. Mm. Now, this was a Republican-controlled uh, House, and it was amendment was put forth by a Republican. Mm-hmm. Typically, with the amendment process, you just kind of go on a party line vote. But what we managed to do, we leveraged our TRIO caucus, uh, the chair of which sits on appropriations. And of course, the subcommittee chairman at that time was Tom Cole of Oklahoma, who's an ardent TRIO champion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, we worked with their offices, as well as several Democratic offices, Congresswoman Gwen Moore of Wisconsin, who's a TRIO alum, Congressman Bobby Scott of Virginia, who worked at Upper Bound when he was in college. Um, And we cobbled together. And also, I can't forget, G.T. Thompson. No, 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 not G.T. Thompson. Um, Yeah, no, G.T. Thompson of Pennsylvania. Yes. He uh, was the, he could still be, the chair of the CTE caucus. So he's the lead guy on this issue. And we got him on our side because he agreed. You don't want to pit two good programs against each other. We want to increase CTE, but you don't want to do it at the expense of TRIO. Right. Um, and so together we had a bipartisan coalition. They made statements on the floor of the House of Representatives. Um, we had a massive campaign where the members talked to each other. And we defeated that amendment on the House of the floor by a vote of, uh, uh, we beat them by 110 votes. Wow, that is amazing. That's a that's a great accomplishment to, to be able to do that. It was a lot. It was very scary, <laughs> but we did it. So effective leaders often have guiding principles that inform their decision making. What are some core values or principles that you hold dear 
and how do you incorporate them into your work with the council and beyond? So I, I do have a couple core principles that guide me in life, and, and I hope people on the COE team can tell you if it's true or not uh, in leadership, but certainly um, I believe in radical candor. Um, I think you can be honest and still be kind. I think you can be direct uh, without being unkind, um, but you still get to the point. And uh, I really value radical candor and, and that's one of my chief, chief principles. Um, also excellence, just, you, you know, <laughs> it's, I hate the, oh, I'm a perfectionist. No, no, no. But <laughs> because of the work we do and the students we serve, we don't have a choice but to be excellent Absolutely. because people are not expecting that from us. And then very often our students don't get that. Um, so we must have the most preeminent level of support that can be provided. They deserve nothing less. And so just doing everything in a spirit and attitude of excellence and precision. And then related to both of these is just being mission driven. Um, I think that's really, if you ask people, why do you, why do you stay at the council for 16 years? And you ask other people who've been here a long time and it's the mission. It's really the mission. It's getting to know people in the trio community. It's the students. Um, and that may, is our North star. And so um, it makes it much easier to put any personal predilections aside because mm -hmm. we're focused on our mission. That's wonderful. If you could give advice to pre-college and college students, what is something you would like to say to them? Ask as many questions as you can. Um, talk to people who've been where you're trying to go um, and just get curious. Get curious about the options that are out there. Um, you know, one thing that was interesting, again, this past weekend at the first year scholars program, the students were so focused. They hadn't even started their freshman year yet, but they were already asking about graduate school and law school and careers and um well that's good i also want to encourage people to enjoy the journey um i think i hope one thing we've all learned as a result of the pandemic is that um life circumstances change very quickly and uh you've got to enjoy the journey absolutely wonderful advice what is something you would like to say to true professionals say you had all the true professionals from coast to coast one room what would you like to say to them thank you for the work you do to support our students. Um, I know you're not getting paid what you get paid. Uh, very often you're dealing with a lot of challenges, whether it's from your institution, from parents, et cetera, um, but you stay the course. So thank you. Um, and th also thank you for entrusting me with this awesome responsibility. And um, again, I'm here as, as a listening ear um, because you all are the experts, not me. Wonderful. By the time this airs, as we said earlier, you'll be installed as the new president for the Council for Opportunity and Education. I'm going to change up the question just a little bit, Kim. Sure. What excites you most about this position? Um, well, it's interesting because having been here for a while, um, you see, everybody always thinks, oh, I would do it this way and I would do it that way. Right. And so to be able to put into action some of the things I've thought about for years is, is certainly something that entices me. But it's also it's a scary as well, because, you know, sometimes you're used to kind of sending decisions up the chain. You're like, well, wait a minute. Pretty soon this is going to be my call. Right, um, right, right. And so I've been kind of testing myself. Like, well, how would I handle this You know, before I send it up the chain? <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it's, it's an exciting time. That's wonderful. 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 What is one word you would use to describe yourself? Ooh, thorough. Thorough. 
I love that. And the reason I asked that question is I usually use that as the title of the podcast for the get for the oh. guest. So we just started doing that. We said thorough. So one of my nicknames at <laughs> uh, high school was Sister Thorough. Sister Thorough. Could I use that? Would that Please. be okay to use? All right. <laughs> yeah, so Maureen's was optimistic, and I think Dr. Mitchum's was nice, right? Yes, yes, that's correct. <laughs> so thorough, that, that, that's nice. That's solid. That is absolutely. Uh, Kim, it has been a true pleasure to speak with you today. Uh, would love to have you on again on the podcast again soon. Sure. Awesome. I, and again, I appreciate your time. Uh, so we do have a tradition on the Let's Talk Trio podcast where we have the guests sign off. Uh, would you care to do the honors? I will. Hi, everyone. This is Kimberly Jones, Executive Vice President at the Council for Opportunity in Education. Trio works. Are you a participant, alum, or staff of a Trio program? Do you want your program highlighted? You or your program could be featured in an upcoming episode of Let's Talk Trio. Get a hold of us by going to our Facebook page or Instagram and send us a direct message. Search for Let's Talk Trio. We want to get your story to the public. That was our guest, Kim Jones from the Council for Opportunity and Education. Kim, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your journey with us. Remember, if you would like to be on the Let's Talk Trio podcast and know a staff, advocate, or participant, or alumni, send us an email at letstalktrio at gmail.com. That email again is L-E-T-S-T-A-L-K-T-R-I-O at gmail.com. A huge thanks to our sponsors, Angelica Villalpando, Felicia Rivera, Dr. Jamie Motley, Dr. Ryan Barone, Angelica Valdez, Rosario Riley, TrioJobList.com, Jaded Electronics, Nosotros Education Center, and Student Access. Thank you all so much for your support of this podcast and for making episode number 100 possible for us. You too can be a sponsor of the Let's Talk Trio podcast in one of three ways. Become a monthly patron on Patreon. Our base patron level starts at a dollar a month. Become a supporter with a one-time donation to the podcast PayPal account. That handle is at Let's Talk Trio. I'd like to take a moment to thank our honorary members of the Let's Talk Trio podcast, Roderick Chambers, Tony Ho, Scott Kendall, and Susan Cramp. The Let's Talk Trio podcast team is John Russell, audio engineer, music producer and composer, and post-production editor. Amelia Castañeda, script supervisor, marketing manager, social media manager, and producer. Juan Rivas, executive producer and host. This episode was recorded Wednesday, July 19th, 2023. Again, a huge shout out to the Council for Opportunity and Education. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will catch you on the next episode.